Hello and welcome to Cornerstone, a Fair Temple Prep podcast. I'm Jacob Crapo. And I'm Conrad Campbell. Going to the temple for the first time can be pretty intimidating. It's a new experience and it doesn't help that when we talk about the temple, it's always pretty vague. Our hope with this podcast is to outline the foundational doctrine of the temple and share what we can so that you can feel confident when you go to the house of the Lord. This podcast has not replaced official temple prep courses, but hopefully complements what you will learn there. Welcome back to another episode of the Cornerstone Temple Prep Podcast. I'm excited to be joined today by my friend Nathan Richardson, who's joining us from the Middle East. Welcome, Nathan. Hello. Good to be here. I'm really excited to be here. I'm, I think it's really neat that you have a Temple Prep Podcast. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved a Temple Prep Podcast. Well, hopefully the people that are listening like it too. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and tell us a little about yourself, Nathan? Um, I am... Uh, I'm an Aquarius. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, I was born and raised in Ukiah, California, which is this lovely little town nestled in the hills between the redwood trees and the vineyards. It's heaven. Uh, and um, served a mission in El Salvador, which is not an island in the Caribbean, like I thought when I was called. <laughs> it's in Central America. And... Um, so uh, all, all of my siblings and I, there's five boys and a girl. We all serve Spanish-speaking missions, which is super helpful when you're trying to talk about sensitive stuff in front of your kids. You just switch to Spanish, and your kid's like, oh, mom and dad, like, w- what is it? We want to know. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I married Beauty Incarnate when I was at BYU, and, and she's pregnant with number seven right now. <clears throat> and... Uh, we, we homeschool, and, um, uh, which is really fun. In the Middle East, there's, there's stuff that our kids are learning that you can't learn from books. They're, they're having all kinds of neat life experiences. And um, one, of, one, of our funny, yeah, one of our funny um, pastimes my wife and I have kind of picked up as, since we're married is besides visiting our regular church meetings, Whenever we have the chance, we will go visit other churches. And so we, by this time, we have probably visited 40 different churches. Um, we, and, and in case you're wondering, the, the, the best toys are the Baptists. They have the best toys in the nursery. The best food is the Muslims. And the uh, best singing is the Mennonites. So we'll just go ahead and resolve those. those everybody's wondering those things. So we, we figured it out for you. <laughs> But we, we call our, that hobby, we call it steeplechasing. That's kind of our nickname for it. It's, it's really fun. We've made a lot of friends. We've learned a lot. And I, I think our kids have it's broadened their minds. It's, it's, it's a, it makes our family scripture study, um, it gives it a little surge of interest whenever we do it because it, we just come home with, with fun discussion questions. I believe it. That's super cool. And one thing I like learning about other religions, I've only done a little bit of steeplechasing <laughs> in my time, but um, it just gives you another perspective on the restored gospel and gives yeah. you things to bring back and uh, to learn from. You know, there's lots totally. to learn from our brothers and sisters of other faiths. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. Nathan, today I'd like to talk about a really important topic um, as it relates to the temple. This is known as the temple endowment. It's something that our listeners have probably heard before, 
But a lot of times in the church, we try to be very careful about what we say and what we don't say about what happens in the temple. This is one of the biggest things that happens in the temple. Mm-hmm. And it's important to, to know what it is, know a little bit about it before you go. Uh, me, for myself, I felt like I was pretty blindsided mm-hmm. when I went to the temple to receive my <laughs> endowment. And so hopefully we can mitigate that a little bit with the people that listen. And they'll come away um, knowing a little bit more about what to expect than I did. I remember one time in college, I was driving. I was driving with my cousin Joni, and uh, she. We were talking about the endowment, and she she said, "I I have questions about the endowment." And she kind of trailed off, and I said, "But you feel like you can't ask me?" And she's like, "Yeah." I said, "Ask me anything. If if I if I feel like I can't answer, I'll just let you know. But ask me anything." And and it was a fun conversation. I remember my college bishop at uh, BYU, uh, Bishop Rupp, uh, he told me that same thing, that, that as time went on and he listened carefully to what the apostles were saying, we can't, can't talk about, it was much more than, than he had previously supposed. And uh, that was when he gave me the first time I'd ever received that copy of that temple's, I guess it's a pamphlet, but it's a magazine size and shape pamphlet. And, um, and he said, yeah, we can, there's, there's a lot more we talk about than we could suppose. And that's what President Benson said in his talk. Uh, what I, what, what did he say? What I hope you teach your children about the endowment, I think is what the talk was called. He said, yeah, we, we should be talking about it more. And, and I got lucky. I never took a temple prep class, but my seminary teacher in high school, Pete Carr, I had him for Book of Mormon and Old Testament. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was, he was doing temple prep. He would intentionally spend time on passages and themes and symbols in the Old Testament especially and and just develop and talking about taking name upon you and and um and and uh, new names and things like that and then so that when I did go through the endowment I things these these things were just familiar I just I just kept thinking oh yeah I remember this from Old Testament oh I remember that idea from the scriptures and I was really grateful that that brother Carr had been doing that that's super cool and like you said I mean the Pretty much everything that's in the temple, everything that's in the temple endowment, it's all in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Maybe not explicitly, but it's all taught there. This uh, Everything that we're taught in the temple are things that we can talk about outside of the temple. Mm-hmm. It's just making that connection that this, what it's talking about in the scriptures, is referring to the temple. And sometimes we don't ever bridge that gap, and yeah. uh, for better or for worse. But I think there's... There's, the, the endowment's a big thing, and it's hard to wrap your head around it. Um, I know David O. McKay talked about how there was temple workers, people that go to the temple like every week to help with ordinances, who didn't understand what the endowment is. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple different ways that we can look at it, um, and we're gonna we're gonna dig into one of those a little bit. I know that you really like mm-hmm. to talk about this one, and then we'll just mention a couple more uh, later on. But if you want to go ahead and take it away, yeah. So when, when I'm doing temple prep or um, explaining just what the endowment is, there's a, there's a certain approach I like to do. Um, I like to compare it to uh, fiction or, uh, or um, myths and legends about, you know, knights going on quests or you know, the hero's journey. Um, so the, I, I bring up a series of pictures for, 
for the students to, to look at. And I'll, I'll show them a picture from uh, Lord of the Rings where, and I'll say, who's this? And they'll say, oh, that's Frodo Baggins. And that's his uncle Bilbo. And I say, what, what's he giving to Frodo? And he's giving him uh, a chainmail shirt of magical mithril uh, from that made by the elves. And then I'll show them a picture of King Arthur uh, on the on the water with a, a sword, a, a woman's hand holding a sword out of the water. So who's this? This is King Arthur. What's he receiving? He's receiving Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake. And then I'll show them a picture of of Luke Skywalker receiving his lightsaber from Obi Wan Kenobi. And then a screenshot of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of Santa Claus giving Lucy her diamond cordial. And then Harry Potter receiving his invisibility cloak. And um, Percy Jackson getting his winged shoes that he borrows from Hermes. And, and I asked the kids, what's the pattern? And in all of these, a person is a person is, has a quest, some task they have to do. Lucy has to defeat the White Witch. Frodo has to destroy the ring. King Arthur has to unite the different uh, uh, small kingdoms under Camelot's rule to protect England. And Luke Skywalker has to take down Darth Vader. They, they all have a quest. And in each of these pictures, they're receiving a gift. And so they've been given a quest that's beyond their normal abilities that they cannot accomplish on their own. And so to help accomplish the quest, they're given a gift that, that helps them do things that they wouldn't be able to do on their own. And that's, I think that's a great parallel for endowment because endowment in English means gift. And we, we in life, we have a quest and that we, that we need to accomplish, you know, come down, learn knowledge, good and evil, be tested, gain a body, learn how to subject it to, to the commandments of, of God, uh, repent every time we, we make mistakes, because we will, and, but as long as we're repenting, we're okay. And, um, and then in order to help us accomplish all those things he, he has for us to do, Heavenly Father also gives us a gift, and, that, and that's what endowment means. And there's many, over and over again, if you look at how the apostles define endowment, when you say gift of what, you know, it's not an invisibility cloak, unfortunately, that would be really cool. <laughs> but, um, but they'll say a gift of power and knowledge is usually the two examples they'll give of what you're being given. So power, um, you know, usually expressed as things like power to resist temptation, power to make the right choices, knowledge, knowledge of knowing what to do, knowledge of what words to say in situations where you, you're not sure what to say. And how many times have you been trying to answer a friend a friend's question and Heavenly Father puts the right words in your mouth. That's that's part of the, the blessings of our covenants is having power and knowledge. And uh, so to, to help them see this pattern, th that this, this pattern from all these, these fantasy stories um, and, and myths and legends, this pattern is also in the scriptures. So if you you think about the apostles right after the resurrection, Acts chapter one or two. Um, the the apostles were given a task. Their task was preach the gospel to the entire world. And so, what gift were they given in Acts chapter two to help them accomplish that? And Phil, we'll we'll make this like a classroom situation and see if you can answer it. I'll, I'll be your student, Nathan. Yeah, I it. believe it was the gift of tongues. Yeah, the gift of tongues. And, and that's one of those times where you can see how the gift is very suited to the task. The task is preached to the world. Well, there's a lot of languages in the world. So the gift they're given helps them accomplish the task, the gift to speak multiple languages. Uh, Nephi, what was his big task? 
Oh, he had a lot of them, but uh, <laughs> you know, crossing the wilderness was a big one. Right. And what was the gift he found outside his father's tent one morning, right before the, the, the day they set off into the wilderness? It was the Liahona that mm -hmm. guided them through the wilderness. And Moses' big task? Again, he had a lot of them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, confronting Pharaoh. <laughs> right, right. Confronting Pharaoh to get him to free his people from slavery. And so at the time that the Lord gives him the, the task, he also gives him an object. He gives him a, a, the rod for for performing signs and wonders. Uh, brother Jared's big task was like Nephi's crossing the desert, crossing the ocean. And what was the task the brother Jared received to help cross the water? Sorry, what gift did he receive? So he was given the the sixteen stones to light yeah. the uh, the barges. Yeah, the shining stones, um, and and also in his case a vision, uh, and and some and instructions on how to do it, and and the vision kind of helped him see a larger history and figure out where he fit in that history, and that that comes back later. Um, Jacob, his big task, he had to escape his brother Esau and preserve the birthright, and so he. He fell asleep. You know the 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 story about him using a, a stone pillow. You know my rest a stone. The gift he received in that case was a vision, the vision of the the stairway to heaven, the ladder to heaven, and was also given a new name at that time, uh, Israel. And then the Savior's big task was the biggest one ever, um, suffering the atonement to to save us from our sins. Um, just before he. Short, near the end of his ministry, as he was preparing to go to Jerusalem for the last time, he went up on a high mountain, and the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was transfigured and spoke to, to two resurrected beings who were glorified messengers. And, and also the Lord spoke his name, this is my beloved son. So, so then, again, kind of an, an endowment experience where he receives a gift of knowledge. And then the, the prototype of all of these stories is... Adam and Eve, they were the first ones to be given a quest and a, and a gift. And so their quest is to enter the mortal world. And then just before they leave Eden to enter the mortal world, what gift does Heavenly Father give them? Uh, he prepares the garments for them. Right. He gives them garments. He gives them clothing. And so of all of these gifts, the original gift was, and, and, and all, in all of these um, you, many of them received an actual physical object, but I'm, but I'm sure in all these cases they're making covenants, receiving power and knowledge. The, the prototypical gift was clothing. And it's interesting, um, the word endowment in English means gift, but the original word in the Greek, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, but from what I've read, the original word in Greek in the New Testament isn't, doesn't mean gift, it means cl being clothed. In, in Spanish, the word for endowment is investidura. You can hear the word vest, like vest, vesture or, or vestment, like it means clothing. So what we call the endowment ceremony, the gift ceremony, in the original languages and in many translations today, it means the clothing ceremony, the, the ceremony of being dressed. Because part of the endowment is we covenant to, to wear the garment for the rest of our life, and it's a symbol of the covenants we made. And the first people who did that were Adam and Eve. They received a gift of clothing that represented the power and knowledge they would need to accomplish their, their task, their quest in life. And the final example um, you can think of is the Joseph Smith and the Saints. Um, 
you, you've, you've heard, there's a great picture. Uh, I remember reading in the Ensign the story about how the saints, the, the big task they were given in 1846, after the prophet Joseph Smith died, what was the big quest they had to do? It was to cross, to cross the wilderness just like Nephi and <laughs> go out to right. the middle of nowhere, uh, right. known as the Salt Lake Valley. And, and, and they knew that that was beyond their normal abilities. And to build Zion out in the middle of nowhere, to, to even get there, and especially with a lot of um, you know, fathers leaving on missions or the Mormon battalion, of course, they didn't know that at the time in Nauvoo that they were going on the Mormon battalion. But they, uh, they knew that this was beyond their normal abilities. And so they stayed up past midnight for, I think, three weeks. Brigham Young was actually sleeping in the temple for a few weeks because he was just doing a steady stream of endowment ceremonies, one after the other, for weeks. Because the saints were so eager to receive the gift because they were about to set off on the quest. Um, so that shows you how much they appreciated it. And in all of these cases, each one of these stories, where 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 did where did they happen? Where did the Savior get transfigured near the end of his ministry? Where was he? He was on a on a mountain. Yeah. Uh, where did Moses see the burning bush? Mount Sinai. Yeah. And uh, Nephi. He, yep. Nephi spoke to the Lord often on a high mountain. He says. Same with Brother Jared. He says Mount Shelem. Yep. Um, where did the apostles? Received the gift of tongues. In this case, it wasn't a mountain, but what city were they in? It was in the temple, wasn't it? It was, it was in Jerusalem, which is where the temple is. You know, and uh, okay. Jacob, when Jacob had his vision of the the ladder to heaven, uh, that was in a place called Bethel. What does Bethel mean? It means house of God. House of God. Um, and so, in each of these cases, you have a mountain. Or the temple, which is the house of God. That's where all of these endowment experiences happen. And the, even and the Adam and Eve story, um, if you read between the lines in Genesis chapter 1, it's clear that um, Eden is a mountain. So there's the, the kind of the cosmic mountain of creation pulled up out of the waters. And then it says Eden is, is where the source of all these rivers flow. Well, that's going to be the high point. And so implicitly, Eden is, is, a, is a mountain. And so that's where Adam and Eve's endowment experience happened. They're, they're dressing where they, where they were clothed with covenants. And then Joseph Smith and the saints, it, the, the Lord said they had to build a place, the temple, where they could receive all that they had to offer. And so over and over again, the place where you receive your, your quest or your task and your gift accomplishment to, to accomplish it is in the, the house of the Lord, Bethel, the temple, the, the mountain of the Lord. It, once I kind of saw this pattern and recognized it, I wanted to, I wanted to share it, and so I ended up writing. The church um, put out a, an all call for new hymns and new primary songs a few a few years ago because they were going to create a new hymn book and a new primary songbook, and so they asked people to submit music and lyrics. And so I didn't, I, I don't know how to write music, but I wrote, I wrote a primary song to kind of teach this idea. Um, and the, the, my goal was to teach this quest gift idea and also to help the primary kids be able to answer the simple question, what's an endowment? Because I don't think I actually would have been able to answer that in primary. I'm not sure if I would have been able to answer it in high school. And so I wanted to remedy that. So I can read you the lyrics of the primary song uh, it's called Endowed with Power from on High. And it goes, Before Lehi set out crossing desert and sea, 
God gave him a gift of a compass to lead. Before Peter went forth to the world to preach, the Spirit rushed in with the words they should teach. And then the chorus is, An endowment is a gift I'll receive if I'm true to help me accomplish what he wants me to do. Gift of power and guidance when I set out in life, I'll live worthy to be endowed from on high. Then the second verse, Before saints left Nauvoo crossing prairies so wide, they flocked to the temple to covenant inside. When I start on life's quest with my callings to do, in the temple I learn till my journey is through. And then the, the chorus again it helps them give a simple answer. An endowment is a gift I'll receive if I'm true, a gift of power and guidance. So it's a, I, my hope is that a, a, a song like that would help kids be able to answer that question if they ever got asked it. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And our challenge to our listeners is to come up with some music for that. Mm-hmm. I, I would welcome anyone who wants to try to set the, those words to music. So as we've been talking about the endowment, um, there's a quote that comes to mind. You touched on a couple of these things, but this one comes from President Nelson. Um, this was just a few conferences ago. He said, we can hear Christ in the temple. The house of the Lord is a house of learning. There the Lord teaches in his own way. There each ordinance teaches about the Savior. There we learn how to part the veil and communicate more clearly with heaven. There we learn how to rebuke the adversary and draw upon the Lord's priesthood power to strengthen us and those we love. How eager each of us should be to seek refuge there. And I think that mm-hmm. um, that gives us more specifics about what that endowment of power and endowment of knowledge looks like. The things that we can expect to learn while we're there. Yeah. The- um, I, I love that quote. I loved it when he when he said that. That's and that's one of the ways. That's one of the gifts we receive in the endowment, the, the knowledge specifically of where we fit in God's plan. Uh, he was he was Hugh Nibley said that the temple. He said the temple is a, a model of the universe, and he didn't mean like you know there's planets orbiting suns so much as how the universe works, what the laws, the way it operates, um, you know how he, how humankind fits in it and is able to find ultimate happiness. The temple is a model of the universe to show how you can fulfill your purpose, and the one of the ways that the temple, the the endowment does this, is kind of telling the whole story of the human family, and inviting you to see yourself in that story. Like this is the big quest of Adam and Eve, and you're one of their descendants, and here's how you here's how you accomplish your quest, and and that's done through kind of uh, talking about and and kind of seeing portrayed. The, the story of Adam and Eve. One thing that I like about the presentation of the endowment talking, you know, um, with that story about Adam and Eve is it, it is a story of Adam and Eve, but it's more so a story of us. Adam and Eve are just stand-ins um, right. for us. Right. And it's, it's our story. It's our story about why God created the world. We created it for us. <laughs> and we have all done things that have, uh, taken us away from God. We have all fallen just like Adam and Eve fell. And we are all on that path trying to get back to our Heavenly Father and enter into His presence again. And that's the story that the endowment gives us. It shows us where we're at, maybe some things we can do better, and what to to look ahead for. Yeah, I like what you said about part of the point of the story is that He created the earth for us. I, I actually submitted another primary song to the to the church's um, 
of the church's request, and it was it's about the creation story in Genesis chapter one, which is part of what the endowment covers. The order of the days in the creation story, that's totally the point. Uh, so if you line up the days, day one, day two, day three, on day one, the Lord creates light. On day two, he separates the waters of the sky from the waters of the ocean. And on day three, he creates land and plants growing on the land. Well, then you line it up with days four, five, and six. Day, day four, he creates sun, moon, and stars. Let's see if, see if you can see the... I wish you could put it on a parallel table to see it. Um, day five, he creates creatures that swim and creatures that fly. Day six, he creates creatures that walk, and, and mankind you know, is able to eat the, the, the fruits and the herbs. Well, now you look at it. Day one, he creates light. Day four, he creates sun, moon, and stars. Sun, moon, and stars use the light. On day two, he creates the sky and sea. On day five, he creates things that swim and fly. Swimming uses the sea, flying uses the, the sky. Day three, he creates land and plants. Day six, he creates creatures that walk. You walk on land, and they, and they eat the plants. And so the, the, the days line up. And what's, the, what's the, the purpose? What's the message? Well, days four, five, and six, sorry, days one, two, and three, if you were to ask, why did he make light or the sea and sky? It's answered on days four, five, and six, to be walked on, to be flown in, to, to shine through the sun, moon, and stars. And the message is, everything God creates has a purpose. If you, if you, you won't see it right away, but if you wait long enough, you'll see what its purpose was. God creates with a purpose. And, and so everything is, all of creation is shot through with meaning. And if you want to know what your purpose is, go to the temple, see the plan of salvation, and, and you'll see God created you with a purpose. He's got some stuff for you to do. Wow, I love that. That's a <laughs> good that, insight. Once, once somebody pointed out, I think I read it in an article, that is, that is how I teach the creation now. Anytime I'm in primary and teaching Genesis chapter one, that's because once you see it, like, oh my gosh, that's what this, this text is saying. That's the point of this passage is God creates with a purpose. So with the endowment, um, it's kind of broken up into two parts. There's the endowment ceremony. Um, which we've talked about quite a bit. But before that, when you go to receive your endowment, there's there's an initiation before that, an initiatory ordinance. Um, and that one would be a little in, unfamiliar uh, to a lot of people as well. So Nathan, what can you tell us about the initiatory ordinances? Yeah, so the word comes from, it's related to our word initials, which is the starting letter of a word or initiate, which means like starting an engine. It just means beginning. And the initiatory just refers to the beginning part of the endowment, which is which is kind of its own separate little ceremony. And you can see it, how it's modeled after Exodus 40, um, which is the ceremony that they would use to make someone a priest in the ancient, in the ancient tabernacle in ancient Israel. Um, it, Moses brings Aaron to the doorway of the tabernacle and and prepares him, uh, ordains him a priest. And the way he does it, I like to compare it to Naomi's dating advice to Ruth. Uh, if you go look in the book of Ruth, um, and Naomi gets this brilliant idea, which is, it's the job of every mother and father, right, to help their kids find someone good to marry. <laughs> and Naomi says, Ruth, 
you need to go get Boaz's attention. You need to go on a date with Boaz. And so when I, when I teach this to audiences of young single adults, I, I'll always have the, a few guys stand up. You know, I say, you know, who, who here, which guys here are single? So I'll have the guys stand up and I'll say, when you're, when you're getting ready for a date, um, how do you get yourself ready? So assuming that the car is full of gas and they have all the, the tickets to the play and stuff, what do you do to get yourself ready? And the guys will always say, well, I'll take a shower. I put on my, my nice clothes and I, I put on cologne you know, or deodorant. And so those three things, take, taking a shower, putting on some cologne, and putting on your, your best dress shirt, that's, that's what Naomi tells Ruth to do. She says, go bathe yourself um, and put on a nice dress. And then she says, anoint yourself. And this is where sometimes knowledge of the ancient cultures helps us make the connection. Oil was the base for perfumes. Like if you take a flower like a rose and you squeeze it, you're going to get rose oil and it's going to smell like a rose. And that oil is where scented perfumes come from. So whenever you're reading in the Old Testament, whenever you read oil, try thinking perfume and you'll often get more out of the passage. So she says, wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your best dress. And so then I have the guys sit down and I, I ask if there's any single women in the audience. And so I have them stand up. And it's fun because now all the singles in the room know where all the other singles are in the room, you know, which is a, a nice side effect of attending the class. Um, but I asked the, the young ladies, what does it tell you when a guy does these things, when he wears his best clothing and, and, he, and he smells like a rose? <laughs> um, and they say it tells me that he considers my, our date to be something important. I said, how would you feel if a guy showed up at your your doorstep to pick you up for the date and he was still sweaty from having been you know throwing frisbee outside and he was wearing like a torn t-shirt still had like dorito powder on it you know from wiping his hands on it and and he kind of smelled does it did he put much thought into the date hours before going out with you was he thinking i'm going to be doing this or was it more like a, a an afterthought and she and the ladies will say that kind of makes it feel like an afterthought, like it wasn't really a high priority in in his day. And so the way we dress, the way we prepare ourselves, sends a message about how important the thing we're doing is compared to other things we could be doing. And that's the same thing when when you are preparing for a date with the Lord. The temple is a time to spend one on one time with the Lord, and we we show him that it's important by getting ready for it. And it's the same thing that happens in Genesis when Joseph of Egypt gets out of prison for, and he has an audience with the Pharaoh. It talks about how they, they cleaned him up, they shaved his head. Like, because when you're going to go into the presence of a king, you don't just wander in. You, you have to be prepared for it. You have to show that this is an important engagement. And so that's where the first part of the endowment that's called the initiatory focuses on being washed, anointed, and clothed because you're about to spend time with the king. And so you want to show him that this is a special time and you mark off that special time by preparing uh, in, in that way. Man, I am glad we don't have to shave our head when we go to the temple. <laughs> Wait, they didn't do that with you? <laughs> you're right, I'm glad we don't have to And I think it's also important noting that when we talk about washing and anointing, uh, we're not talking about full body washing. Right. Um, that would be something that they did in ancient Israel, but today mm -hmm. it is a symbolic washing and a symbolic anointing. 
and the clothing part, you get to do that privately. Right. In, in, on your own and inside a locker stall. Um, but uh, it's kind of like how the sacrament, one of our words for it is the la- is um, uh, not the Last Supper. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not, not communion. The Lord's uh, Supper. Lord's Supper. That's that's the word. Um, it's not a full blown meal. You don't actually sit at a big long table and have a seven courses. You have a in the sacrament. You have a small piece of bread, a small token that represents a larger meal. So you you, you have one small bit of food, and it's, in your mind you're supposed to be thinking it's as though I were eating the whole meal. Same thing with washed in the temple. It's one small gesture that represents as if you were taking a, a full shower or something. And when you do go to the temple, you should absolutely be clean both physically and spiritually so that you, you know, so that symbolic washing means something. Right. Take Naomi's advice. <laughs> yes. And I like what you said about, you know, getting ready and making this a, something that's special, like going on a date with a cute girl you want to take the time to do that. And I think it's important not just for who you're going on a date with, but it's also important for you because mm-hmm. it tells you that this is something that's important to me. It gets you on your best behavior. It puts you in the right frame of mind. Exactly. Yeah. And so, like you said, we're with Joseph in Egypt. He got ready to, to approach the throne of Pharaoh. And when we go to the temple, the endowment is symbolically approaching the throne of God. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have to wash ourselves. We have to anoint ourselves and put on different clothes that we're not used to wearing. Um, because we are ascending to the throne of God. And um, it's, it's, something, it's something special to us and to God. And we need to make sure it, it is that way. Right. Um, so the, the clothing that we're specifically talking about, there's uh, temple robes. The church put out a video showing what those temple robes look like, the ceremonial clothes. Um, There's also the temple garment. Um, Some people call it magic underwear. It gets mocked a lot, but there's nothing magical about it. It's a a sacred symbol of Jesus Christ that we are taking upon ourselves. And it's it's part of that clothing that we wear to make that temple um, experience special. Right. And and another way, it's like the sacrament. Uh, So the temple robes, we only wear in the temple during the endowment ceremony. But the temple garments are underclothing that we wear every day for the rest of our lives. And uh, we were talking about how sacrament is tied to baptism, because one of the purposes of sacrament is to help us renew our baptism covenants. So once a week, by doing the sacrament, we're remembering the baptism covenant that we made one time. Well, the endowment's the same. We, we receive the endowment for ourselves just one time, but every time we put on our garments, we're remembering the covenants we made. So I see some parallels there between putting on the garment and taking the sacrament. The, the purpose is because we humans need reminders of things that we've done. So, so that, I think that pretty much covers the initiatory. Um, going, going back, or I guess, you know, taking a step forward to the actual endowment ceremony. Um, there's, a, there's a few important things to keep in mind, some things that the church is, is, is more than happy to talk about, and that is what the covenants are of the, the temple endowment. Um, I'm specifically thinking of the five laws that we covenant to keep as we receive the endowment, and we can talk about those a little bit here if you'd like. Um, 
We're planning on digging into them a little bit deeper on future episodes, but those are the law of obedience, the law of sacrifice, the law of the gospel, the law of chastity, and the law of consecration. Yeah, uh, we were, we just had a sand dollar out the other day. <clears throat> um, you know, I'm from Northern California, and you can find them on the beach. And they, 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 they look like a, they're about the size and shape and even color of a snickerdoodle, <laughs> like a, a cookie. And um, they have five holes in them because they're echinoderms, like starfish or sea urchins. Um, and so there's, there's five holes in them in their, in their star-shaped body plan. And I read kind of one of those funny, you know, cute, cheesy little poems uh, several years back about how the five holes can, there's an Easter message in them and you, the Savior had five wounds and I just thought, you know, next time I teach this to my kids, I'm going to, I think I'll tie it to the five uh, covenants we make in the temple. That might be a fun way to help them remember it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why God created them, is to help us remember the endowment. That's exactly what Sandal is for. Echinoderms, yep. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, the covenants we make in the temple, that's one of those things. I remember when I was talking to Bishop Rupp, um, he said that he personally had had kind of grown in understanding that that we can talk about these things. And President Benson in his talk about what you should teach your your kids about the temple, he lists the five covenants. Um, now they're listed in the the general handbook, and it's actually there's you can you can go back decades and you can actually find statements where apostles have laid them out in this this or that talk or devotional. Uh, Jeffrey Bradshaw, which if you want the best scholarship on the book of Moses and on the temple, go read anything published by Jeff Bradshaw. And it's hard to keep up because the man is very prolific. <laughs> but in one of his publications, he, he, he listed five or six or seven statements from the past several decades where apostles had laid out the five covenants. So it's nice nowadays that we have Elder Bednar's talk in general conference, and now it's in the easy-to-find place in the, in the handbook, those five covenants. Um, and, and thank goodness we also have sand dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think Elder Renlin, just this last conference talk, uh, talked about it as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is ab absolutely something that we can talk about. Um, I recommend that everyone go read what the church handbook says about the temple endowment. Go look at the church's website to see what it talks about the temple. Um, these are all great resources to see what can and can't be said. In this podcast, we try really hard to give as much information as we can without crossing any lines. But absolutely, we are not a, a representative of the church in any way. Mm -hmm. Go and read those things for yourself. But those five five covenants, absolutely um, talk about them with your kids, talk about with your parents, with your teachers. Um, these are things that you need to understand before you go to the temple. And Elder Packer put it really well in his book, The Holy Temple, I think that's what the book is called, if I remember right, um, <clears throat> that if you're if you're already living your baptismal covenants, then nothing's going to surprise you about living the temple covenants. It, it's, you're, it's the same thing. Yeah. You're, you're covenanting to do whatever Jesus Christ asks, and then here's a list of things he has asked. You know, be chaste, uh, live the gospel, um, yeah. consider all of your property to not be yours, but to be on loan from the Lord, and you'll be accounted later for how you used the material goods he gave you. Those are all things that if you're keeping your baptismal covenants, then you're already doing your temple covenants. They, I also see a parallel between 
my my friend uh, Chris pointed this out that you know how the Ten Commandments can be divided into um, love God and love your neighbor. He he noticed that the five covenants you have you know the covenant of obedience is uh, you know it's like faith and repentance, obedience and sacrifice. Obedience is getting it right the first time, and then when you make mistakes, that's what sacrifice is for. Just like faith is getting it right the first time, and then the backup plan is repentance, which is a backup plan we all need. And then if you look at the remaining three covenants, well, it's the law of the gospel, that's a, you know, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then the law of chastity, which is you know appropriate relationships with, with our fellow human beings regarding how we use our bodies, and the law of consecration, sharing what we have with our neighbors. Well, there you have the progression from love God to love your neighbor. The, the law of the gospel, and then chastity, and then the law of consecration. And it's interesting, just like how the Ten Commandments, the first four are loving God, and the latter four, six are loving your neighbor, the, the bridge commandment between loving God and loving your neighbor, you know, kind of like who's your first neighbor? Who, which neighbor uh, of all the people in the world is the one that's most like your relationship with God? Well, it's, it's the, the fifth commandment, honor your parents. Yeah, so, so family is kind of the bridge be, between loving God and loving your neighbor. It's the first neighbor that we learn what love looks like is in a family. Well, you look at the, the temple covenants going from gospel, loving God, to consecration, loving your neighbor. The bridge covenant is chastity, which is, again, family, putting ourselves in a right relationship with our spouse and, and, and honoring our commitments to them. So there you also have loving God and loving your neighbor. And where we, where, where we, the, the place where we learn how to love our neighbor that's in families. The, the relationship with human beings that's most like our relationship with God is marriage, kind of the message of the book of Hosea. It's, it's, it's a pretty powerful pattern there. One, one thing I'd like to add real quick about the five laws, um, but this is true for the whole endowment, is these things, it's, re it's really important to keep in mind that all of these covenants, everything that we learn in the temple, all of it, the whole purpose of the temple is to teach us how to become more like Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I love about the endowment is as we make these covenants, we symbolically become more like Jesus Christ. And that's something that we're expected to do throughout the rest of our life is to become more like him, um, to take upon him, to p take upon us his name and his image and to represent him as we go out in the world. Yeah. Amen. That's, uh, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's expected that it's, it's a long, slow process, um, and we shouldn't get discouraged when we wake up the next morning yeah. and, dang it, we're still human. <laughs> it's still, still imperfect. Well, that's, that's the, the quest isn't accomplished in one day. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's good to know what we're working towards, and, and the endowment is a great tool to help us to, to get there. Yeah, I, I like to think of the endowment ceremony. The temple is like a, 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 way, a way station where you go... You know, like people talk about the Sabbath is like being filled up, filling up your tank with gas. I think of it as get, coming in, getting equipped, and then, you know, your your commander slapping your helmet and saying, "Okay, get it out, get back, get back out there to the battle." And, and that's kind of what the endowment is: is kind of a reprieve, and then back out to the battle again. <laughs>
Dana. And she she was actually a nun in the monastery. She she moved to America from she was born in China, moved to America when she was age eleven, and then was a, a nun in the monastery for six years until she was uh, went and did her senior year of high school, and uh, down in the Bay Area. And we, I love having conversations with her about religion because she totally understands the sacred. She understands the idea of ritual and and making promises. Um, she she had shaved head, saffron robes, would sleep only four hours a night, sitting up, only two meals a day. So she, she understands dedication and, and, and structure. And so she she will pose questions that are not the kinds of questions I get from like a Protestant friend. They're just from a different angle and it's really fun. Sometimes it's very challenging to try to figure out how would I answer that? And when the Ochre Mountain Temple in Utah was had its open house, uh, my wife and I uh, took Dana with us to the Elk Mountain Temple, and my my brother and his six kids were, came also came with us that day. And so we were going through the temple, and and Dana was asking about she said, "What do we do in the temples? What do we do endowment? We do ceilings. We do baptisms for the dead." And she says, she asked, "What does the ceremony look like? And what does the ceremony do?" So she says. What does the baptism look like? You know, we, we show her the baptistry. You go under, down in the water and come out. And she says, okay, and what does it do? Well, baptism cleanses you from sin. You, you, you enter a covenant to, to obey God. And she says, okay, what does a ceiling look like? So we take her to the ceiling room. And I asked my niece to explain to her what a ceiling ceremony looks like because my niece could remember uh, the day she was sealed to her, to her parents. And, and so she explained, you, you kneel at an altar and hold hands over the altar. And so then Dana says, okay, what does the sealing ceremony do? And my niece explained it means that you're joined together forever. Um, which, and, and so then Dana says, what does the endowment look like? And said, you're in the best place to find out. And so we showed her, we, we went, through, went through the series of rooms and to the celestial room. And so this is, this is, um, this was super helpful for me to understand because the, the endowment is a blend of a bunch of different symbols. Uh, you know, there's there's changes in lighting, there's changes you, you put on robes, there's there's words spoken and, and gestures. There's there's a bunch of different symbols, and so it can seem like a lot to coming at you. But the main symbol of the endowment is that there's a room that represents heaven, the celestial room, and before it there is a series of rooms, and we start at the room that's far from heaven, and we end at the room that's near to heaven. So the endowment is a ceremony that goes through a series of rooms. You start far from heaven, you end in, in heaven, in God's presence. And, and that's the main backbone of the, of the endowment ceremony. So, so baptism uh, is, well, for all of the, the ordinances that we do, they teach us something about uh, the, the atonement, and sin, which is the problem the atonement solves. So the baptism ceremony goes in, is going in water. That means the atonement's like being washed. Implicitly, that means sin is like being dirty. In the sacrament, we eat food. So it's saying the atonement is like being fed. Implicitly, it means sin is like starving, which is not a great symbol, especially because we often don't even realize we're starving. Um, with the uh, sealing ceremony, we, we hold hands. So the atonement is like being joined, uh, linked. And implicitly, uh, sin is like being separated. Well, that's the endowment. The main symbol of the endowment is moving through rooms. So the, the, that shows that atonement is like be, coming closer 
to God's presence, which means sin is like moving farther from God's presence. So each of these symbols in the ordinances teaches us something about sin and atonement. And once I understood that the main symbol of the endowment is moving through a series of rooms to get closer to God's presence, that is kind of the, the coat rack that you can hang all the other symbols on. Like I'm, I'm also receiving robes as I, as I move through the ceremony, which means if I want to get close to God, I have to make covenants. I'm walking past altars as I move through the rooms. That means if I want to get closer to God, I need to make sacrifices. All of these are symbols in, in the structure, and that's why the Lord told Joseph Smith in section 124, there's not a place yet that I can come and restore that which is lost, or, you know, temple covenants. It, it's a, it's a, if you want to get baptized, you need a river or a font. If you want to do the sacrament, you've got to get some food. If you want to do the endowment, you need a building because you need rooms to move through. And, and nowadays, they've simplified the, the temple architecture because in part, I think, to make the temple more accessible to everyone in the world and make it less expensive to build temples and make the, be able to do the ceremony more and, and less, in less time. So nowadays, instead of having five rooms, like the, the original Latter-day Temple um, plan, now they just have two rooms. They have the slush room and then the room before it that they just call an ordinance room. But it is helpful to understand that when you're in the, the first room, you should think of yourself as moving through four rooms because that's the idea. The ordinance room represents all the other rooms before the last one. That's kind of what you were saying about the change in, in lighting. I noticed that in the Las Vegas temple, which is where I'm at, mm-hmm. they, they, have the light, they start the lights out pretty dim. And then as you symbolically move from the far room to, the close, to a closer room, they turn the lighting up. Right. And the same, you know, it just keeps on going until you're about to enter into the celestial room. And I, I was in down in Oakland, and they just had the ordinance room and the celestial room. And so I think I went, you know, half a dozen times, and I never, I never caught on. If you're paying attention, it's clear that the changes in lighting are supposed to represent you. Think as, as though you had stood up and moved to the next room. It's supposed to help you think of as if you are actually physically changing rooms. <clears throat> and I... I didn't really make that connection until I, I went through a live session in the Manti Temple, in the Salt Lake Temple. And then I was like, oh, the endowment is moving room to room. That's like the basics of the ceremony. And that's me getting closer to God step by step. And, and the things that bring me from one room to the next, that's telling me in life, if you want to get closer to God, make sacrifices, make commitments, you know, keep your covenants. Yeah, the same thing happened to me. I didn't make that mm-hmm. connection until I went to the Salt Lake Temple back in 2019, yeah, mm-hmm. before they closed it down. And I don't want to make anyone feel like uh, you've never lived until you've been through a, a live session. It, as, as long as you make the connection, uh, it can be just as fulfilling going to any, any temple. Yeah, I, th- I think pointing it out so that people yeah. can recognize it as they go to the temple, that's something that yeah. we, we've just done the hard part for you. Uh, right, right. Because you're probably not going <laughs> to go to a live session anymore. Right. <laughs> but that whole idea of moving from room to room, that's not something that is unique to the... Um, modern day temples Um, if you look at the temples in the old testament there is the outer courtyard and then there's that first room in the tabernacle or in the temple and then there's the holy of holies which represents the the presence of god so why don't you tell us a little bit about just talk a little bit about that yeah so excuse me it's interesting you talked about lighting because that, that comes into play there. So the, the ancient tabernacle, which was the, the portable tent temple that the Israelites made when they were wandering in the wilderness, and then the later stone temple that Solomon built, they have three spaces. There's the outer courtyard. You know, There's no ceiling. It's op- open air. And 
Then there's the building itself, which is divided into two rooms by a curtain. So you go from the outer courtyard into the, the main building, which is called the sanctuary. That first space is called the holy place. And then there's a curtain, the veil. And on the other side of that is the, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, or the holiest place. And that corresponds very clearly to some of the, the rooms today. So the Holy of Holies represents God's presence. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is, which is the throne, God's throne. And so the, t the temple room today that corresponds to that would be the celestial room. And then the space before it, um, coming outside the curtain, outside the veil, the holy place. Um, well, let me start actually, start in the, court, in the courtyard. The courtyard is where animal sacrifice took place. So, you know, it's kind of noisy. There's distractions. There's animal sounds. There's, you know, crackling fire, kind of a probably a charcoaly burnt smell. Um, that represents the world, you know, where there's sin and, and, and death. And in the, in the modern temple, the, the third room is called the world room. And that represents life here and mortality with all the with pain and suffering and sin. Then you go forward in to the holy place in the ancient temple, and there's there's a veil on the far end of the room. In front of the veil, there is an altar of incense, which represented prayer, so an altar for prayer. And and there was also a change in lighting. Instead of the light of the sun, you now have the light of the menorah. And then and then the, the in the modern temple, when you go past the the world room, uh, you you go to the it's the, called the terrestrial room, and it's quieter, simpler. There's not murals on the wall. And there's uh, the veil, an altar in front of the veil. And then you go, in both cases, you go to the next room beyond the curtain, and you're in God's presence, the Holy of Holies or the Celestial Room. And, uh, and I first learned about these from that Temples magazine that Bishop Rupp gave me. And you look in the captions, and it'll have photos of all these different temples, and it has the names of the rooms and the captions. And, and you, can, you can look at and see how different temples will portray it, because there will often be murals painted on the wall. Like in the Salt Lake Temple, in the world room, there's these two lions fighting, which is fitting because the world room represents the world we live in of pain and, and death and sin. <clears throat> and so, so in the ancient tabernacle, that middle room where the altar of prayer was, um, that corresponds to the, to the terrestrial room today. The, there's some neat symbolism and how they would do prayers, in in because the the priest would go, uh, the priests of uh, the descendants of Aaron, they would go into that room. I, I I believe it was every day. I think it was every morning and every evening during the the, the two sacrifices that they they did, they did every day, and they would go offer incense on the on the altar of prayer, and the rep, the smoke going up represented our our prayers going up to heaven. Well, there's a fantastic movie came out in about 2004, I think, called The Nativity Story. It's a, it's, it's a Bible film of The Nativity Story. It's a great Christmas movie. Um, it, it, uh, they, they, the way they depict the story of Zacharias is really well done because it's him going into the temple, into the holy place, to stand in front of the altar of prayer that's before the, the curtain, before the veil, and offering prayers. And while he's doing that, while he's saying this, it's a recited prayer, I think, from the book of the Psalms. Or, and while he's doing that, out in the courtyard, there have gathered other Israelites who are worshiping, including his wife Elizabeth, in, in, as depicted in the film. And they're reciting the same prayer he is. So it cuts to him in front of the altar of prayer, 
reciting the prayer, and then cuts to the, the other group of worshipers reciting this, the, the same words that he's saying. And one of the messages of that temple ceremony is that there's power in group prayer and in group worship in general. And, and to when you're, when you're, the Savior said, if you're not one, you're not mine. Like part of being Zion is being of one mind and one heart. And so joining in prayer and saying the same prayer together is a powerful way of becoming united under Christ. And um, it, it, I think of all the stories you've heard of when a, a stake has fasted together for the same purpose, like you know that somebody's in an accident or has gotten sick, and everyone in the stake will will fast together. There's there's this power in communal prayer, and that's one of the things that that the temple teaches us is how to be united towards the same worthy causes. So I think some of our listeners might have heard the phrase uh, temple temple prayer role. Mm-hmm. or I'll put your name in the temple, or something along those lines. Does right. that have anything to do with what you're talking about? Right. So, so we can, we can, one of the things you can do in the temple, um, when you first go in, it's usually down in the, kind of the reception area, uh, in the waiting uh, rooms, there will be a little table where you can write on slips of paper names of people you know who, who need, need prayers, who are going through something hard or, or need help in their life. And those names... Are are included in in the prayers that we do in the temple, and the idea is that's called the the prayer role, and that's what they're talking about. And so it's it's one of the special blessings that we get in, in the temple is that we can we can have the names of our loved ones, we can write them down, and then those are included in the prayers that we do in the temple. And there there you can you can if, just just chat with people, and you'll hear neat stories of how people's lives have been blessed. From the the prayers said in the temple, uh, that when their 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 names had been included on the t- the temple prayer roll, there's there's power in having lots of covenant keeping saints saying a prayer together. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan, for for sharing that uh, about the temple prayers. Um, we are wrapping up, but I just wanted to ask one one final quick question. Um, we don't have to get into this too much, but the, the endowment is a big thing. It's a big decision to make. Um, when should people look to start getting their endowment? Yeah, if you look in the church handbook, uh, it says that all adult members of the church are invited to prepare for the endowment. And we typically are used to thinking of people getting it before they go on a mission or before they get married. And those, that does tell you about the importance of the, those two quests. Those are very important quests. But those aren't the only times that a person can be endowed. Uh, it, it says in the, the handbook, I, the, phrasing, the exact phrasing escapes me at the moment, but basically it says if you are willing to take on the, the covenants of the temple, then start preparing and talk to your bishop. And, and um, it, does, it does mention that if it's someone who's married to a non-member, that it's a good idea the, the leader will probably be consulting with the spouse um, not, not, it's not so much about like permission so much as just making sure that the, the spouse, the non-member spouse understands that when their spouse takes on these commitments, it'll change some of their daily interactions. Specifically, they'll be wearing you know, temple garments and they just want to make sure that the spouse just kind of understands uh, is on board and supports them in that. But um, pretty much anyone who is, is an adult and wants to take on those commitments and, and get the, the gift of power and knowledge that comes with it is invited to be endowed. And I, I would suggest that 
in particular, if you're, if you're wondering, you know, what is my task in life? What is the quest Heavenly Father has for me? Um, and, and whether and when to receive your endowment, consult your patriarchal blessing. That's a great way to find out what quest Heavenly Father has in mind for you for your life. And I think that will give you a sense of why you need the endowment and will help you kind of get excited about it. Absolutely. I think the minimum requirement is you have to be out of high school or whatever the high school equivalent is in your area. And you have to have been baptized for at least uh, it's, you have to wait at least a year from your confirmation. So whatever, you know, once you meet those two minimum requirements, you have met and and you're worthy. You, You meet all the requirements to go to the temple to receive your endowment. Like you said, if you're preparing for a mission or marriage, um, you'll definitely be getting the endowment. Elder Bednar a few years ago said that um, endowment in the temple uh, precedes effective missionary work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really important to, you know, that, that's one of the things that you need in order to go on a mission. I actually served during COVID and I had some, I had some missionary companions that were not endowed yet. And mm-hmm. it was, it's been really interesting talking to them about, mm-hmm. you know, serving for, a few months before they went to the temple and um, how they feel like the mission prepared them to, for the, the endowment to be meaningful. Interesting. Really cool. I'm not saying that they're not effective missionaries, (laughs) but uh, yeah, that's what other Bednar said. So you can, you can feel the difference. I mean, it it matters. The the availability of temple covenants is a quality difference in life. It, It really does do something. Nathan, would you like to share your testimony real quick, and then I'll share mine. We'll close this up. Yeah, um, I, uh, um, I think I, I think about Hindu talking about the temple being a model of the universe. The, the the neat thing about being able one of the biggest blessings of the restored gospel is work for the dead. Not just because it blesses the dead, but it blesses us. Because imagine if you only ever went and re- received your endowment one time. And that was the only time you ever got to do the ceremony. It's such a blessing to live in a day and age where we do work for our deceased ancestors. And we get the benefit of reviewing, oh, yeah, this is what I promised to do. Oh, yeah, this is the plan of salvation. Being able to do the ceremony over and over again is like zooming out to 30,000 feet, saying, here's the plan. And then zooming back in, saying, here's where I am in the, in the plan. Here's where I am in my progress back to Heavenly Father's presence. And to be able to do that over and over again, it anchors you to know where you're situated um, how, and, and to know wh- why you're here on earth. I'm especially, I love that in the ancient temple where there's those three rooms, I love that there's three rooms as opposed to say like two. If, if there were only two rooms, um, if you were to be in God's presence, you would think, hey, I, I've arrived, I'm done. Or if you were to be outside God's presence, it'd be tempting to think, oh no, I'm it doesn't matter what I do, I, I, I'm not there. But by having the three rooms in the ancient temple, it, when you're in the middle room, you can both be motivated by, by you know, I still, need, I still have progress I need to make I need to enter Heavenly Father's presence. But you can also turn around and say, look how far I've come. And that keeps you from getting uh, discouraged. And that's, that's kind of what I think about in the, in the temple. Like, you can see that you've got a long ways to go, but you can also turn around and say, look how far I've come. Kind of like when we take the sacrament, we shouldn't just think about the things we did wrong. We can also think about the things we did right that week or, or how the Lord helped us keep our covenants. 
uh, I find the temple super encouraging because it, it tells us where we're going, but also shows us how, where we've been and, and how far we've come. And I think that's the Spirit's way of whispering to us, you can do this. I'm, I, I've got you. I'm, I'm right with you. Um, let's go on this journey together. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Um, I, I love the temple. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is because I love it so much. And I think it's really important to understand. Um, when we go to the temple to receive our endowments, we are equipped with everything that we need to in order to walk back into the presence of, of God. It's an incredible blessing how available temples are and how they're becoming more available all around the world every year um, because then we can go back. It's like we already have all of the tools that we need, but being able to go back and, and see them again and hear the things and just be taught by the Lord, it's just such an incredible opportunity. Um, as we've been talking, there's one symbol that I think is important that's really important to me. It's touched my life. Um, but when we're sitting in that second to last room in the endowment, before we go into the presence of God, the only thing that's standing between us and God's presence is the veil. It's just the same as the, um, the temples in the old Testament. It's that veil that separates us from God's presence, but that veil, it's so thin. You can hear through the veil. It's not like a wall or a door that's locked or anything. It's just, it's just a fabric curtain. And um, when I go to the temple, it really does feel like we're, we're just one, one sheet of fabric away from God's presence. And that's, that's my favorite thing about the temple. But amen. I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Cornerstone and Fairy Temple Prep Podcast. We hope that you found this discussion insightful. The Cornerstone Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions and beliefs expressed in this podcast are the views of the person who expressed them and do not necessarily represent the position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Fair Latter-day Saints. 